Well, good morning. Uh, because of my religious background, I think I've struggled with a problem of being more judgmental of people than most. I grew up with some really strong convictions related to both my beliefs, but also in terms of my practices, what I thought was okay for a Christian to do or not to do. And sometimes even now, I, I still struggle to judge those who call themselves Christians but hold a different perspective than I do on a variety of different subjects, especially if they're controversial subjects. I won't maybe say something to the person, but in my heart I might be thinking something like, if you were a good Christian, whatever that means, if you were a good Christian, you wouldn't land on that perspective, on that particular issue or whatever else. As I've grown older, I've come to realize that it's possible for Christians to have different perspectives on things and actually both be right sometimes. And if I did judge, you would have a right to ask me the question, who made you my judge? Because that's not what we're called to do, to judge other people. Now, I think if we're honest, all of us would have to admit that we struggle sometimes with judging other people, and not just in the religious area, it's in all kinds of areas of our lives. We form opinions or judgments when we first meet someone, for example, you, you just form opinions. About a week or two ago, I was in a public place. I saw a guy standing there who was wearing these shorts that from my perspective were hideous. They were entirely too tight. They were entirely too short for his long legs and I'm looking at those shorts and I didn't form just an opinion about the shorts. See, that's kind of the problem with it. I, I formed an opinion about what kind of guy would wear shorts like that. So it's like an indictment on, on the person because people shouldn't be wearing shorts like that. It becomes more like that. I've since learned that that uh, style might be coming back and I'm afraid. But my opinion is more a reflection of me. <laughs> Tim, you're getting old. You know, it's like, and, and, and I, I won't wear something like that, of course. Hopefully, stop me, Karen. <laughs> but we tend to judge, and, and it's things like that. You form an opinion immediately. I tend to judge people based on their habits and skills at driving. I just do. Although, to be fair to me, I have a three-strike system in my mind that actually keeps me cool. Uh, if somebody cuts me off, for example, and they don't use their turn signal, in my mind, it's strike one. Now, sometimes it's out loud, strike one. But it's like strike one. And then if I'm following them on, especially the Grafton Road, and they're going 10 to 15 miles under the posted speed limit of 55, and I'm behind them, well, that's strike two. You know, you're not out of the game yet, but it's strike two. And if you're driving in that left passing lane and you've got a train of cars behind you and no one in front of you, that's strike through. That one might be an out just by itself or whatever. But I tend to evaluate, like, you're not a good driver. I've only, though, run into two people in my life that, that admitted I, I'm lousy at driving. And one was so bad, I actually had him park and said, you can't drive anymore. He was young. He just couldn't drive. Most of us, though... In our own estimation, we think we're much better drivers than most. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But do you think you're a good driver? All the hands would go up. Do you think you're better than most? Just about every hand would go up because that's what we think of ourselves. And then we evaluate everyone else on the road. 
It's easy for us to think we're qualified to judge people based on a variety of, of issues. But how much freer would we be if we said, you know, it's not my job to judge. It's not my job to be the one to enforce how you should or shouldn't drive, to kind of let things go. My takeaway today is this, that we need to focus on our own faults and not the faults of others. I just think that that's, we've got enough in our own lives that needs to be worked on that we should not be expending energy to be judging other people about things. Now, you might wonder, are there occasions in which it's okay to judge? And the answer is actually maybe surprising to some of you. But yes, there are occasions in which it's appropriate to judge. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus said judge not. Well, we'll get to that passage in just a little bit here. But there are other places in the New Testament that, says that, that say that judgment is to take place within the church. And there is a judgment that's appropriate, and there's a judgment that's not appropriate, and the context determines which is right or even what you mean by the word judge. And I'll get to some of this at the end. When we get toward the end, I want to just kind of flesh it out. Today, though, we're continuing our series titled Face to Face. We're talking about encounters Jesus had with people and groups, people like you and me. And today, we're looking at the story where a woman was brought to Jesus by the religious leaders... And she was accused of being guilty of committing adultery. And so they bring this woman to Jesus for judgment. So I'd like to read this story. It's found in John 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He went down to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. So let's talk about this a little bit. First of all, to talk about what I'd call the elephant in the room. If you're reading this story in your Bible, whether electronically or in a physical Bible, you'll notice that this particular story is in brackets and there's a little asterisk there. And there'll be a comment down below that says something to the effect that this story did not appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts and it, it doesn't belong in John's gospel, something along those lines. And yet they still included it. And you wonder, well, what is that all about? Was this a real story? Should this be included here? And, and I'm convinced that the scholars that acknowledge that it wasn't in the original John chapter 8 section there are correct. Uh, even the, the, the vocabulary that's used in telling the story, it uses words John never used in any of his writings. And so you could kind of conclude it's not his style of writing or anything. That doesn't mean, though, it didn't happen and that it wasn't true. And a lot of scholars believe it actually actually belongs in Luke. And most scholars seem to agree, yes, indeed, it really did happen. And I personally uh, am of the opinion, yes, it did happen. 
it passes to me what I call the test of authenticity. You know, there's certain stories that you hear about with Jesus that just make, make sense about the way Jesus would be. I, last week, I think, referred to th- this story of Jesus when he was just a little boy that he, he took some mud and formed a bird out of it, and then he breathed on it, and it flew away. You know, a miracle of turning it into a, a living bird. And I said, you know, that story doesn't pass the test, in my opinion. As a boy, Jesus would not have been about impressing his friends with magic tricks. That would have changed the whole trajectory of things. If he had done that and word got out, what would have happened? I mean, it's just a story that doesn't line up with the way I understand Jesus to be. But this one does. This is exactly how I would expect Jesus would have treated this woman, and I think it really happened. A scholar by the name of R.C. Lenski writes, this spurious section reports quite correctly an actual occurrence in the life of Jesus, and I think he's right. That's my judgment about this, and that's our word today, judge, judgment, that it really should be there. The surprise of the story, though, is this, that the ones who end up being guilty are the people that accuse the woman, not the woman herself. I mean, this looks like a story of a woman who's guilty of sin, and of course, it looks like she committed this sin, but the ones who end up slinking away are the religious leaders who are so self-righteous. They become indicted by this. That's the irony of the story, that before the story's done, you realize they're sinners too, which again brings me to my takeaway, focus on your own faults, not the faults of others. Now, let me talk about the details of this story. Jesus arrives at the temple early. He begins to teach the people. Suddenly, these scribes and Pharisees show up with this woman who's caught in the very act of adultery. For those of you that aren't familiar with scribes and Pharisees, a scribe in my study Bible has a note about this, that scribes were a professional group in Judaism that copied the law of Moses and interpreted it, especially in legal cases. And so these were, these were guys that would take the scrolls of the Old Testament and they'd write them out. And in the process, of course, they'd learn a lot, you know? I mean, if you were writing scrolls all the time, you'd be reading your Bible constantly and they knew the, knew the Bible. And so they became like what I'd call constitutional lawyers where matters would be brought to the scribes and they'd say, well, the scripture says this. You know, our biblical constitution says this. And many times, scribes were also Pharisees. In fact, I think most of them, most of the scribes would have been Pharisees. The reverse was not true. Most Pharisees were not scribes, but the scribes were Pharisees. Pharisees were a strict religious sect of the day. And they were ones who who really tried to follow. They were like set-apart ones who wanted to follow the letter of the Old Testament law. But they went beyond what the law taught, and this was the problem. They began to interpret what the, the law looks like in modern day, and, and they came up with all these rules about it, hundreds of rules. As it is in the Old Testament, there were 603 Old Testament laws, some positive, some negative laws. They turned it into thousands, maybe tens of thousands. So for example, they had a rule about the Sabbath day. You were, you're not to work on the Sabbath. So they defined what does the Sabbath look like if you're someone who walks? They'd say, well, you could go this far, but no further. If you go beyond that distance, you worked. You're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And so they defined it. When the disciples one day were with Jesus and they were walking by some fields and they grabbed some of the wheat off of the 
of the grain heads of somebody's field, which biblically you could do that. In the Old Testament, you were allowed to take what you could, whatever you wanted from somebody's field just to eat. The Pharisees had a real issue with it. They said, you're harvesting. See, they defined that as harvesting. And this is part of the reason Jesus had so many issues with them. But they had rules about everything. The rules were not as much the problem as the pride and the self-righteousness that resulted from them checking off all the boxes. They'd look down at everybody else. We're Pharisees and we're following all these rules. And then they come along and bring this real sinner in the presence of Jesus. What are you going to do with this woman? That's what the story was about. And they accused her. Now, the way they did this was a problem. And Jesus would have seen through all of this. First of all, their motives were wrong. They didn't care. They didn't care about justice. They didn't care about the law of God. They certainly didn't care about the woman. Their motives were wrong. And the text even says that they were, they were doing this in order to trap Jesus. That's what it was about. And by the way, just in terms of having some discernment in our day and age, there are a lot of people out there, especially politicians, who, who put out a nice show about caring about this and that. But if you look beneath the surface, you'll see they could care less. They could care less. Their own life does not measure up. It doesn't line up. You say, you don't care about this issue. You care about something else. And that's what was happening with them. Their motives were wrong. Motives matter. I mean, if we're dressing something in someone else's life, motives matter. But the text even says they were trying to trap Jesus, and it looked like a good test. Because whatever Jesus did, it looked like he was going to make somebody mad. Dr. G.I. Bochard writes about this. The story has all the features of a setup where only the poor woman is presented, not her partner, and the parameters are defined in such a way that mercy and justice are made to be opposing principles. To choose either one would call for the condemnation of Jesus because he'd be viewed on the one hand of being against the law of Moses and on the other of advocating mob action involving capital punishment, which was the province of the Romans. In other words, only the Romans could put people to death. The legalists probably thought they had Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Jesus was either going to make, you know, disagree with Moses, which was a problem, or else he was going to say, kill her, and the mob would get all worked up, and then the Romans would even arrest Jesus. And so it looked like anything he would do would be wrong. But Jesus was smarter than they were. But the motives matter. Second reason that this was a problem was that the guy wasn't there that was involved with this, which was alluded to in the previous quote. The Old Testament law required if a a man and woman were guilty of adultery, both were to be put to death. And by the way, I acknowledge right up front that that seems like a harsh punishment in our culture today to put people to death for, for adultery, but it does demonstrate that when God was establishing the nation of Israel, he really viewed marriage and your marital vows as very, very important to the point that if you broke them, that was the penalty back then. A third problem related to the fact that they weren't handling this the way biblically you were supposed to anyway. If you caught somebody in what's called a capital offense, an offense worthy of death, Like one example is idolatry in the Old Testament. But if you caught someone in an offense worthy of death, the law required you to be the one to throw the first stone, which Jesus alluded to in his answer there. You you have to do it. It was a great 
addition to the law that God put in there to make sure that you didn't falsely accuse someone or casually do it. Because if you accuse someone of a crime that was worthy of the death penalty, you had to be the one to pick up the stone. And that would cause you to pause a little bit and think, I don't know if I want to do this. It caused you to question, did I really see what I think I did? It would, it would really put up some checks and balances in the process. But again, they weren't interested in justice. They didn't need to bring this to Jesus. They knew what the law said. They could have done it themselves, but they're trying to trap him, you know? But it is important that what they were doing was wrong in terms of the way they did it. So they, they bring her to Jesus. Moses says this, what do you say? And in the Greek language in which this is written, this is in, in the emphatic position. I talk about this occasionally, but how it should be translated is, Moses said this, but you, 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 what's your opinion about this? The you is emphatic in the sentence. We want your opinion, putting them directly on the spot. What does Jesus do? Well, he kneels down and starts writing in the ground. And so they keep pressing him. What's your answer? He didn't answer initially. And then he stood up and he said, the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone. Now understand this. I think it's, we need to understand that Jesus was not implying that you can't address sin in someone else unless you're perfect. Jesus wasn't talking here about being perfect or completely sinless. Dr. Jameson puts it this way. He was not meaning sinless altogether, but probably he whose conscience acquits him, of any, acquits him of any such sin. In other words, what Jesus, I think, was saying here was, the one of you that's not guilty of a sin of the kind that we're dealing with here, whether in word or action or deed, you be the first one. You remember how Jesus often got to the heart behind the commands He'd say, you know, the Bible, you know, Moses said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lust in your heart, you've already done it. You know, you're not to commit murder, but if you have hatred in your heart, you're guilty in your heart of committing murder. So I think that's what Jesus was getting at, you know, when he, when he said, well, the one of you that doesn't have a sin related to this subject, you're the only ones that can see clearly, so go ahead, throw the stone, you know, standing there waiting for them to, to do something about it. And they begin to leave one by one, starting with the oldest ones and, and the other ones. Now, at this point, it's important to understand that um, Jesus was not dismissing her sin. In fact, the passage ends with her, or Jesus saying to this woman, don't sin anymore. The NIV actually translates this rather strongly, go now and leave your life of sin. It implies that she actually had a lifestyle of, of adultery. I mention this because sometimes uh, we think that Jesus was soft on sin. That's what people talk about, how Jesus was love, and he loved sinners, and he did. He was called a friend of sinners, and they loved being around him. They didn't feel judged by him. That does not mean, though, that he was soft on sin or that he excused their behaviors. He never did that once in the Gospels. Not once did he say, I know that you're committing these horrible sins. Go ahead and continue. No, most people were changed when they met Jesus, like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He would have been despised in his day, and tax collectors were known for their dishonesty. He met Jesus, and Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. If I've cheated anyone, I'm giving back four times as much. It brought about repentance. 
It brought about a change of lifestyle. God loves us exactly where we are. In fact, that's the kind of church we want to be, where regardless of what anyone is doing or has done, you're welcome here, but we're growing spiritually. We start from that place and we begin to grow and change. I think Jesus did this with the woman at the well. You know, he went right after her sin. He said, you know, the guy you're living with is not your husband. He wasn't afraid to address it is my point. And sometimes people say that, well, Jesus just accepted sin, all sin or sinful lifestyles. No, he never did. But he did accept sinners. He wasn't judgmental, which is exactly what we're told that we're not to be. Even Nicodemus himself, you know, Nicodemus, a religious Pharisee, You'd say, well, that guy hasn't done anything wrong. No, he might have been guilty of the greatest sin, pride, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, and Jesus looks right at him. You need to be born again. And so let's not misunderstand what was happening in this story. But anyway, Jesus bends down and begins writing in the, the ground there. So what was he writing? Well, we don't know for sure, but there are some... I don't know, some have speculated. Some think that what Jesus was doing there was writing a, a verse from Jeremiah. There's a verse in Jeremiah about how a person's name who rejects God will be written in the sand and then blown away. You know, there's a verse like that in Jeremiah. Some people think that Jesus was doing what he did to model the, the Roman judicial system. In a judicial trial, Roman trial, uh, before a sentence was pronounced or announced, it would be written down, and then it would be read. And so some think that's what Jesus was doing. Some people think that what Jesus was doing here was writing down the sins of the accusers, which I think is kind of likely. I mean, can you imagine if you're one of these uh, scribes or Pharisees, and you've got this secret sin going on that nobody knows about, and then Jesus puts it out there? You know? And, And some people think he was writing the Ten Commandments, which I tend to think that may be it because it would have been simple in the Hebrew language to write out the Ten Commandments. We're all guilty of breaking those. All of us have broken the Ten Commandments. You say, well, no, I haven't. Yeah, all of us have, again, going back to what Jesus said. It's the heart of the matter. You might say, I've never bowed down before any idols. No, but have you had an idol in your life, something that was more important than God? If I look at the Ten Commandments, I don't want to be judged by them because I would be found guilty, and he might have been doing that. And again, it gets us back to our main point that we need to focus on our own faults. Why are you looking over there when you got your own things here? Now, God didn't tell us what it was. And I'm sure there's some reasons why. But we read that one by one, starting with the older ones, the more wise ones, people started to walk away. Borchard writes about this. I picture their departure one by one or one at a time as a kind of slithering away. I think that's exactly what it was. They kind of slipped away, you know. They, they were indicted by what happened here. Then Jesus looks up and they're all gone. And Jesus says to the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there's no one here. And then Jesus said, well, then I don't accuse you either. Now, again, this doesn't mean he was dismissing what she was doing. And by the way, when he did come to the earth, he didn't come the first time to judge. He did come to save But I think Jesus said what he did because even in justice, he couldn't accuse her now because the accusers were gone. For this to be a real trial, you had to have two witnesses. And Jesus looks up, there are no witnesses. He says, well, I guess nobody's here. I I, I can't judge you. I think that was happening there. So let's bring it home. In Matthew 7, 1 through 6, Jesus talked about judging other people. 
Let me read it here and talk briefly about it. Do not judge, Jesus said, beginning verse one, so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they'll trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Now Jesus would have laughed at this illustration. It's just a hilarious thing. You, you, you just picture somebody there that has a big logs or a moat you know, sticking out of their eye and they're going up to someone else. Let me take that speck out of your eye. And they're so blind they can't see what they have in their own eye. So let me make some observations about it. Uh, first of all, uh, when Jesus says not to judge, he's not talking about all judgment. Again, there are other passages that do talk about judging. What he's talking about is the role of a judge. You're not to sit in judgment on somebody else. That's not your job. Whose job is that? That's God's job. I, I, don't, I don't have the right to sit in judgment. I'm not the one that's going to judge you. I can't make certain pronouncements against someone. I can't sit in judgment. D.A. Carson explains it this way, do not assume the place of God by deciding you have the right to stand in judgment over all. Do not do it. I say, in order to avoid being called to account by God whose place you usurp. It's God's job and you're taking on the role, saying I have this right. And it's proud, pride many times. Looking down, feeling like we're from the superior position to be able to judge other people. It's God's job. Jameson puts it this way, to judge here does not refer to simple judging at all, whether favorable or the reverse. The context makes it clear that the thing here condemned is that disposition to look unfavorably on the character and actions of others, which leads invariably to the pronouncing of rash, unjust, and unlovely judgments against them. In other words, you see another person and in your heart you condemn them. You know, you're not a good Christian. You're not going to heaven. Whatever, we make pronouncements and whatever is in the heart comes out sometimes. And Christians have been doing this for years, judging the culture, judging other Christians, you know, making these pronouncements. We're not to do it. We're not to sit in judgment of others. God will do that. Number two, second point, sharing biblical truth with someone is not the same as judging them. And so if I go up to someone and I say, you know, if you, don't put, if you don't put your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be your deliverer, your savior, you won't go to heaven. That's not judging. Especially if I quote then John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Apostle Paul said there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given to somebody by which you must be saved. I'm, I'm quoting verses. I'm not judging whether or not you know God or not. I'm not judging whether or not you're going to go to heaven or hell. I'm laying out God's word. It's God's word that's judging. And if a person feels convicted by that, it's God's word that's doing it. It's not me. And that's not the same as judging. I mean, you can see the difference here. If I say, well, this is what's in the Bible. There's no judgment there. But if I say you're this, then that's another matter entirely. In fact, sharing messages like this is almost the opposite of judging. It's love many times. Third point, we are called to lovingly confront sin in a fellow believer's life. 
And again, that's not judging. Galatians 6.1, Paul wrote, Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. So we correct people with gentleness and with a certain humility and a recognition that we may commit the same sins. We're all guilty. I mean, we're all able or capable of committing all these sins we judge in others. Don't think that you're not capable. Every sin is common to us. And in the right circumstances, maybe all of us would give ourselves to certain particular sins. But if someone is in this situation as a Christian, it's the loving thing to go and say, listen, I'm concerned about you. You notice the heart there, the motive. I'm concerned about you because I see this area in your life that is sin. That's not judging the person. It's a different thing. But we have to watch ourselves. Jameson put it this way. He only is fit to be a reprover of others who jealously and severely judges himself. Such persons will not only be slow to undertake the office of censor on their neighbors, but will make it evident that they do it with reluctance, not satisfaction, with moderation and not exaggeration, with love and not harshness. We need people in our lives that'll do this, that'll point out things in our lives in a loving way. And it's not judging that. In fact, even in Matthew chapter 7, you know, what did Jesus say? He said, take the log out of your own eye then. Then you can go for that speck here to address the issues in our own lives first before we go to those that others have. And then finally, I want to mention about this judging or whatever, even confronting people. Jesus ended this with an interesting Analogy in Matthew 7, 6. He said, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they'll trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. What was he saying? Well, he was, he was saying in the matter of addressing even the little specks in someone's eye or whatever, in, the, in this whole subject of, of, of judging, if there is somebody that will despise the truth you know, you have this truth, it's like a pearl, but they won't value it because they, they, you know they're the kind of person who will not listen, will not respond to it properly. Jesus said, don't do it. Keep your mouth closed. If I know there are people, they, this is a wonderful truth and I'd love to give it to you, but you won't treat it well. What does Jesus say will happen? Well, well in that situation, it's like there, it says like pigs. You've got pearls and you throw them to the pigs. Well, the pig not only doesn't value the pearls, not only tramples it underfoot and treats it like trash, but will attack you. And that happens lots of times because we make the mistake of confronting people that we should never have said anything to. And so Jesus throws that at the end. You know, judge not, remove the log, deal with the speck, but avoid this. I think all of these are, are true. Now, let me close with asking this one question, where are you in this story? I think some of you are like Pharisees here. And, and you do struggle with being judgmental. And I encourage you, number one, to examine your own life. You know, before you deal with a sin area in someone else's life, examine yourself. Do you struggle with the same thing, you know? And ask yourself the question, what are my motives? Why am I doing this? Is it to make me look better? What's the reason? Is it motivated out of love? Because that should be our motive. And some of us are like these Pharisees. But some of us are like the woman in this story. And some of you have felt condemned and you felt judged so much by other people. 
And, and Jesus did say to her, you know, if you're involved in something that's not good, don't do that anymore. But at the same time, I love the fact that Jesus was all about extending forgiveness. Jesus loved to change lives. And he's able to do that with us. There's forgiveness. He's able to extend to us through Christ for anything we've done wrong. Nothing is too beyond him. And this woman was likely released from her debt that day. We're going to close with a song here this morning called Heart of God. And it's a song that talks about the fact that, that kindness and mercy are greater than judgment. And a couple of the lines of the song go this way. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. Love wider than the horizon, stronger than all sin, Lord. Your kindness leads to repentance, to the heart of God. Your heart, O oh God, is all I want. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing love you have for us. All of us are guilty in so many ways, and yet you love the world in this way to send your Son to be our Savior. And because we all do struggle, Lord, we won't, don't want to be ones who judge others. We really want to treat others the way you've treated us. We love because you first loved us. And we want to extend kindness and love to other people. And yet at the same time, confront things, address things, so that we can become ones who love you more and live a life that leads to abundance. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.